The Full English Breakfast is supported by Chess King, royally powerful training software worthy of Her Majesty's 60th Jubilee celebration. With Chess King, you can play, analyze your games, solve tactics puzzles, and access a massive database. So it's a great deal at $49. Bucks. Or you can pick up a copy of Chess King Pro, which is even more powerful, for $99. But to support the podcast, you have to use the coupon code BREAKFAST at chess-king.com. And when you do, send an email to chessking at thefeb.com to be entered into our next prize drawing. So go to www.chess-king.com. Don't forget to use the coupon code BREAKFAST, and thanks. Getting used to this is going to be the more challenging part. Hi, this is Vishwanathan Anand, and you're listening to The Full English Breakfast with Lawrence Trent and Stephen Gordon. This is episode number 22 of The Full English Breakfast. I'm Macaulay Peterson. We've got championship fever, U.S. championship in St. Louis, and the world championship in Moscow. Been action-packed, isn't it, recently? And with me to review all of the latest action is International Master Lawrence Trent and Grandmaster Stephen Gordon. How's it going, guys? Well, 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 here we are again. We've got clips following the tie-break, plus tape from Hikaru Nakamura's U.S. championship win. Let's start off, actually, by having a listen to world champion Anand's comments at the post-game press conference. The first thing he was asked, just for his sort of general emotional feeling, uh, following the conclusion of this tie-break match. Yes, of course, it was uh, incredibly tense. Well, when I woke up this morning, you had this feeling that one way or the other, this was really coming to an end today. But, okay, you simply don't know how it's going to go. I mean, the match was so even that I had uh, no sense of uh, what shape the tiebreak would take. Right now, probably the only feeling you have is relief. Uh, I think I'm even too tense to be happy, but I'm really relieved. Look, before I go off on one, you know, I've got the deepest respect for both Anand and Gelfand as players, and, you know, players who have, have inspired me over the years. In fact, I've got nothing but admiration for him. But on this occasion, disappointed would be an understatement. I think both of their performances were uh, uninspiring and uh, in some ways the chess world has been let down by this performance by both of them because this really was one of the most dire competitions I've ever seen, probably even overshadows a Lecco versus Kramnik match in 2004, I think. It will undoubtedly go down in history as the match that will be forgotten more than any other. I know I sound quite harsh in many ways, but when I look through the games and I see the number of extremely short draws, uh, when I don't see any real fight, when I see Anand offer a draw in the final game with the white pieces, when he's got 50 minutes up on the clock, a pawn up, and yes, 
arguably, the majority of times out of 10, it will be a draw that position. He's got absolutely no risk. I just don't understand. Well, about that game in particular, the 12th game, I was watching the live commentary when they agreed to a draw, and Vladimir Kramnik, who was doing commentary that day, actually said that he thought that was one of the strangest decisions he'd ever seen in a match. It's a weird one, isn't it? And my assessment of the match is a little less strong than Lawrence's. I mean, I feel as though... I'm sympathetic to Anand's play. Not his decision in the last match. I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone can give any kind of logical reason as to why he's willing to offer a friendly draw and take it into the tie breaks when he can still, you know, put a bit of pressure on. That's inexplicable. Um, But as far as the chess goes, I mean, Gelfand's match strategy to, to play very directly with the black pieces and it, in some ways in his style but choose a completely new set of openings in which to challenge Anand it must be uh, it must really throw you off at the start of the match when um you you have no anticipation of what your opponent is coming to the table with and actually i think it was um really effective match strategy and preparation from Gelfand i thought Throughout, even though six all was the result, his chess was um, and his preparation for the match was a lot better. He was putting pressure on with the white pieces. He was pretty comfortable with black for the most part, except for a very strange decision in the game that he lost, which uh, is the shortest game I'm told in World Championship history. So, in some ways, yeah, I mean, this match is gonna it's gonna be forgotten. Well, I agree with you. Uh, throughout the match, uh, they seem to be both content with the, the short draws, uh, deflecting criticism. Uh, at one point, Gelfand said, for example, that, well, you know, we're not here to entertain the spectators, or I'm not here to entertain the spectators. I'm here to play the match to the best of my abilities. It's certainly the case that he exceeded people's expectations. Sure. Yeah. I think if, if, if one had to put the blame somewhere, it would be more with Vichy. Uh, because Gelfand has come into this match as the underdog. The thing that has really, really lacked is the, the energy, the short draws and so on. I think all in all, probably Boris played the better chess. Well, I want to talk about the draws. I want to talk about the lack of energy and what kinds of changes we might see being proposed going forward for handling the World Championship. But first, let's hear uh, another clip from the World Champion uh, Anand was asked to share some of, of the secrets, some of the things that he couldn't reveal as the match was going on, assessing the arc of the match, which is something that the players were both very reluctant to do uh, at all as it was still in the thick of things. Well, um, I had the impression that this would just be a very tough uh, match where neither of us would get a lot of ground. I was not really going to oppose this. Um, I mean, when I was looking at all of uh, Boris's matches on the way here, he was, you know, of course, trying in every game, but never um, uh, doing something insane and uh, trying to unbalance it. I mean, if the match is proceeding steadily, then um, and in the in the beginning, you could see that our preparation was more or less um, balanced. I mean, I wasn't getting anything much with White, and probably neither was he. At least the first six games. But the problem in such a tight match is um, uh, every mistake has a much higher value than in a match where there are mistakes flowing back and forth in every game. In a match where there there were so few chances, for me it was a really incredibly heavy blow to lose game seven. 
I count myself extremely fortunate that I was able to come back the next day. For me, I would even say this was the critical moment in, my, in the match from my perspective because um, I was not getting a lot of chances and that's exactly the situation where you don't want to be behind. So um, after that, well, we continued trying till the end. Um, I know some of you thought we were already he heading for the tie break, but it wasn't like that. We're not heading for it, but I'm not going to do something insane just to avoid it because then you might not even get there. I wouldn't say there's some kind of justice in this or something, but you simply play the tie break. I, I think given that we drew our first 12 games, deciding it by a tie break is quite a reasonable situation. Uh, obviously, we, I'm not suggesting we start with it, but after such a long and tough match, uh, maybe it's the only thing that could separate us. And um, well, even the tie break, of course, I was just incredibly tense. I imagine um, my opponent as well. Well, things really went my way, and that's all you can say. Um, I think I can say that I won because I won, and, and that's it. So. so, I won because I won. Not not quite Yogi Berra quality, but we could see that ending up on a bumper sticker. You know, I'm sympathetic. It's been a cagey affair, and both guys have stuck to the principles. And I've seen it in one or two comments from other top grandmasters that they said, you know, these guys, when they play each other, the chess is inevitably quite boring because... Um, Neither player is willing to take the risks to turn it into chaos, get a bit of mayhem going. Okay, so here's my question. Is it just about the players, or is it something about classical chess, or about matches as a format for determining the world champion? I mean, let's face it. If, if you want more of an exciting setup for a world championship, you're probably looking towards a tournament. I mean, I was, I was speaking to Lawrence about the world championship, about the US things... We were in agreement, you know, US Championship, far more exciting to watch. Yeah, the play is not as good. It's not as good. I mean, we're talking about two of the best players in the world fighting it out, but Nakamura's being creative. Kamsky is smashing one or two players. Then you've got, you know, some of the younger guys putting in some big performances. If you have that at a World Championship, um, top-level World Championship tournament, then... Yeah, it's going to be more exciting to watch, but then we're going to have complaints about that. A tournament could happen, and uh, you know, someone unexpected or some one of the one of the lesser favourites could come through and win it, and then we start moaning about, oh well, he's not the true world champion. Every system that we go for. We're going to be moaning about something. Okay, well, let's stick with the current system. Let's assume we're going to stick with the current system. First, here's an argument that it's really more about classical chess than the format. It came from Steve Giddens, who was talking on his blog about uh, computer preparation and how significant that has become a factor uh, in, in a match like this when you have big teams working for long periods of time to prepare your openings. He says, quote, if he gets nothing from the opening, he being Anand, he will have a huge trouble beating a player like Gelfand and vice versa. The result is a whole series of effectively contentless games where the players are just checking each other's computer-rated preparation. That's not a new thing, what he's saying. I mean, I, I totally agree. A lot of importance is on the opening. You need some kind of idea to catch your opponent out or get him in a, you know, some kind of muddy waters. Um, if you don't get that, yeah. It's going to be difficult to break someone down. I do um, agree with Steve on numerous points there. Um, but I also think there's a real problem with early draw offers. 
actually, there's two ways to combat it. Either you lengthen the championship, but then it loses its commercial appeal. Um, and it's obviously logistically a lot more difficult to have something like the Tretzikov Gallery uh, rented out for you know a month rather than a couple of weeks. And then, of course, if that doesn't work, then you do something else. And again, saying, well, OK, unfortunately, this may be a case for Sophia Rules because there were positions which were agreed draws in that match not just Game 12, but other games where there was still a bit of play left. I'm sorry there were. I've looked at every single final position. I'm not saying, objectively speaking, they aren't draws, but there is still some play left. I mean, for example, I'm looking at the game where it was a B3 Sicilian and and Anand's last move was A3. Move 25, A3, and a draw was offered. Uh, where it's rook and knight versus rook and bishop, there is still play in that position. That is not a dead draw. Well, of course, I agree with you on one level, but uh, in defense of the players, of course, uh, two things. One, they're simply playing by the rules, so it seems to me if this is the result, then that has to be addressed in terms of how the match is structured, the regulations, etc., which will come to an idea for that. And secondly, just about the the agreed draws uh, in positions that you say still have life, there is, of course, the factor of overall match strategy, uh, trying to, to maintain your, your energy and a psychological component uh, that uh, is not necessarily reflected if you just look at the final position and say, well, they could continue to play on. Isn't this the fault of um, whoever's written the contract for the players? I mean, if it's as drastic as we play the Sophia rule, no draws, or we write in the contract... Some of your pay is being contributed because you are going to act in a sporting way. You're not going to take draws. You're going to show fight and you're going to do everything you possibly can to make this entertaining for the spectators. I've got no idea what you'd write in a contract to go along those lines. But make it clear to the players that that is part of their role in the match. And I don't think, you know, Gelfand's clearly not been told how to handle the media. Never. You know, he doesn't give him much information. He's saying, I take it game by game. He's done it before. So is it a case of our top guys need a bit of training? They need a bit of training with the media. For potential sponsors, that might make things a little bit more appealing. Not only with Boris through comments like this, but I think also, despite Vichy's spotlight in the media, he was ultra-conservative, I think, in the press conferences. I mean, there's playing your cards close to your chest and then there's, you know, stapling them down and, and hammering them on so they're never seen. All right, well, before we disappear too far down the rabbit hole on this one, I want to throw out a couple of ideas, one just sort of about scheduling and one slightly more radical and get your thoughts on it. This is how to address the draw situation. One of them I heard on the 12th round live webcast with Vladimir Kramnik doing commentary, although it wasn't his idea. But Kramnik said on the, on the show that what you should do is have them play the tie break first before the match begins. And that way, the players know in advance that if the match ends 6-6, who the winner is. So in effect, the match can never be equal. Whereas in this match, one reason why we have these string of draws is arguably that you know, each time there's a draw, the match is equal. When Gelfand won and then Vichy struck back, the match became equal again, going into game nine. But if the tiebreak is played in advance, two things happen. One, the world championship will not be decided by the tiebreak. But at the same time, 
it, uh, it will also encourage the players to fight much more because of this imbalance that is created by having the winner of the tiebreak that was pre-played known to both players each game as the match progresses. It's a very interesting idea, that, isn't it? I mean, when I first heard that, I wanted to say that is an awesome idea. But then, just imagine, you know, imagine, say, Anand wins the tiebreak to start with and they play a 12-game match. Anand may bring very uninspiring chess to the table. He's willing to not really fight with his white pieces and save all his energy for his black games and just try and draw every game. Well, if even if Anand tries to play in a dull way, though, Gelfin's going to be fighting like the Dickens every game because he's got to win. Okay, yeah, I understand, but does is Gelfin now forced into playing not in his style? Well, the argument would be that over a 12-game match, it should be possible sure. to still see reasonable games. It's not like they play the tiebreak and then they only play two classical games or something. They still have this 12-game match, and that and maybe it should be a 14-game match anyway. But the point being that uh, it's just it just changes the dynamic slightly without without seriously undermining the nature of the game, the quality of the chess. I'm actually going to play devil's advocate here. I, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with this idea. And it's very simple, is that if you did this before the game, it isn't actually a tie break. The whole reason why it takes place after the event is to decide something in the case of an equal match such as we have here. So what it is is actually just an extension of the match. I think you're overcomplicating this. All it is is it determines who has draw odds in the match. You know, for a long time in the history of chess, the world champion had draw odds automatically. Right, sure. Including uh, in that Kramnik-Leko match that you mentioned. Well, then bring back draw odds. Yeah, but, but this way it adds a, another element because the challenger could have draw odds. It changes the dynamic. It's not just that the world champion gets special privileges, but that you determine who has the draw odds in the match, and that and that adds energy to it. It's an interesting way. It is interesting. Don't get me wrong. When you said it, it was the first time I heard it, and I thought... Yes, that could potentially work, but I think there are other solutions before reverting to that, such as no draw offers before move 40. I can absolutely assure you that if we had that in place in this match, with how many draws did we have before move 40? Five or six? One of those games would have been decisive, and what would that have meant? We would have had a world champion decided through classical chess. So it's the early draw problem that needs to be rectified, in my opinion. Okay, second idea, and this one's a little bit more radical, but also quite interesting. Let's go for it. Sex it up. This was told to me by Frederick Friedel, editor of Chess Base. Okay, known well. And his idea is the draw works the same way. You can offer it at any time, but it's valid for 10 moves or maybe five moves, or some arbitrary number of moves, but more than one move, which means that you have to use it extremely judiciously. Because if you offer a draw, and your opponent has, for example, some way to sacrifice and get some very dynamic attacking chances, they'll go for it, knowing that they can still bail out and accept your draw. <laughs> wow. But think about this, think about this, because all this means is that you can offer a draw, but you can only offer a draw in a truly dead position where it really is a draw, there's nothing to play for, because otherwise, the moment that you do, that's it, the guy is coming for you, <laughs> and he can still win. So, for example, let, let's just take a, a case study then. Let's look at game 12, right? The odd thing about that game is Vichy was the one who offered the draw. If it was Boris that offered the draw in that position in game 12, then great, then that rule 
works perfectly because it means Vichy's got ten moves to try and prove an advantage and it's a win-win. I mean, come on, guys. Come on. I mean, we're talking about smart people here. If you bring that rule in, who in their right mind is ever going to offer a draw, ever? I think that that rule is an overcomplication of the Sophia rule. No, no, I disagree. I disagree for this reason. There are maybe plenty of positions where the queens come off early. It's a symmetrical pawn structure where the game really is drawn at move 20 or move 25. And why should you make them sit there and, and, and play uh, to move 40? you know, in that kind of a position. And it doesn't have to be 10 moves. If it's really becomes totally crazy, totally ridiculous, you know, make it five moves. But you have to think about it. You have to only do it in a situation where it really is a dead draw, not where there's still play in the position and you just don't feel like taking the risk or whatever. Well, uh, it totally changes the nature of our game. Does I mean, it really totally change the nature? Yeah, because then when you look at these, when you look at these correct games of chess, you know, some people could spoil it. Like, for example, you know, say Gelfand takes the bishop in the in the last game of the match and offers a draw, and Anand hadn't offered a draw. Then Anand's got five moves to play, or whatever number you want to put on it, n moves to play, and then he can take a draw. He could just sacrifice two rooks in the next two goals and say, okay, then draw. It's true. And people, the general public are going to look at the game and think, what in the world happened there? Why is that a draw? Why is Gelfand not played on? Well, but the, there would be a draw offer that would be notated in the game. I mean, obviously the draw offer has to be included in the game score. It's just farcical. I mean, you know, if, if someone wants to write a newspaper article, it leads to a lot of explanation. And I've got to say, it makes us look like a bunch of idiots. Does it, though? Does it really lead to more explanation than it does to explain the draws as they occurred? I mean, if you're writing a newspaper article for the general public for some of these games and you see that it just ends as a draw... You know, you have to explain a fair amount to to get into chess psychology, match psychology, because you can't say the position is just drawn, as Lawrence pointed out, if there's play in the position. I don't see how making a rule change, I mean, once the concept is, is clear that, you know, the draw offer is valid for five moves, you know, it doesn't take a genius to, to get the ramifications of that. It's just, oh... Draws are around for five moves, so naturally he's going to take his chances. I mean, okay, my my um, scenario is ridiculous, and I'm sure players wouldn't treat it with such disrespect. But there's so many scenarios we could make up where it does make a bit of a mockery of that rule. I mean, what about if someone blunders into checkmate? Checkmate gets on the board, and you say, actually, do you know what? I'll take a draw now. I'll take a draw I'll now. Take a draw. Cheers. I mean, I, I'm sorry, Macaulay, but I. Why would there have been a draw for f- five moves before a checkmate in any, in any situation? Well, you never know, Macaulay. No, no, no. When when would there be a situation where that could possibly occur? You could think you have a perpetual check. You think you got a perpetual check on, and actually you do a king walk, and the next thing you know, you're in a mating net. But if you had a perpetual check, you're not offering a draw. No one offers a draw if there's a perpetual check. They just make the perpetual. Well, no, it might look like there's a perpetual check on. But then you just make the perpetual. You don't offer a draw. Macaulay, then. there's been plenty of games that I've played where my opponents had a perpetual and they haven't followed the um, correct route of doing it. So, you know, you play, you repeat the position twice and on the third one you write your move down, you stop the clock, you get the arbiter and claim it. Once or twice, I've had people just playing the moves back and forth, and then offering me a draw. How is that relevant? I mean, you mean they don't understand the rule about... Uh, yeah, well... They would just play the perpetual then, in that case. No, but I think that's just one of many examples, because, you know, there are other positions which 
on the face of it, seemingly look like a draw, right? They seemingly look like one, but there's still that element that something could happen. So play it out. That's the point. You play it out. Guys, I'm so disappointed that this is still, like, up for debate. I mean, give me... Let me just have one more scenario for you. I'm playing Trenty, and he's, he's played a beautiful game, but he's got two minutes left, so I give him this tactical draw offer. I say, do you want to draw? You've got 10 minutes to play in two minutes. I'm giving you something else to think about in your two minutes. Offer a draw. With this new rule, he's been given a little security blanket to play five of those minutes and see what happens. Why would you offer him the draw then? Don't offer him the draw. Don't offer him the draw, but you've just taken away a privilege that I have. I'm judging it that I'm losing, but in this situation, I think offering a draw is going to waste a bit of his time and I'm possibly going to get out of this half a point for the better rather than just having to play a move and give him the opportunity to beat me with his two minutes. Who hasn't used that? Okay, so you're saying it takes away a strategic draw offer in a lost yes. position. Right. Yes, it does. I can think of so many scenarios where I think that's wrong. All right, well, we want to hear from you. Is there a solution to this strategic draw offer problem that Stephen points out? Uh, maybe you have some other ideas for how to discourage draws in world championship matches. Send us a comment via our website, thefeb.com, or our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash thefeb. We always like to hear from you. Moving on, we spent quite a lot of time on the World Championship, but I do want to at least uh, briefly touch on another major event, the US Championship, which featured the return of Grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura, who, uh, it should be noted, after Anand's performance and the many draws he had in the match, Nakamura actually leapfrogs Anand on the live ratings and moves into number five in the world. Oh, wow. He was very critical of his own play, but uh, still managed to best his nearest rival, Gadakamski, in their head-to-head -head match and ended up winning the tournament a full point clear. Quite an impressive result. And here's a, a little bit of tape with Hikaru. This might have been a 60-second segment, but he's talking here with Jennifer Shahadi, who was the host of the live commentary show that I produced, um, the same day as he uh, won the championship by beating Yasser Serwan in the last round. Now, um, why are you often like looking away from the board um, during the game? Does that mean that you don't like your position when you kind of like look away? And uh, maybe, maybe I'm just looking to see if there are any attractive girls out there. <laughs> uh, in, in all seriousness, though, usually, usually it's just because um, I'm, I'm calculating mentally. I'm looking at a board in my head or calculating variations, and uh, it's easier to do that than to look at the board itself. So you actually didn't prepare that night before Gata. You really went out. Yeah, why not? Where did you go? Uh, I just went to the Del Mar Loop. And uh, how many drinks do you have? Uh, I, I had a few. I had a few. Now, you mentioned track of girls earlier. What, what do girls usually say um, when you tell them that you're a chess player? <laughs> is that usually a good thing? Or? Um, actually, it, it is generally a good thing. I think, unfortunately, and this is part of the bigger problem with chess, is chess isn't sexy. I mean, people don't think of chess the way that they think about sports. And... Um, so when, you know, I, I try to act as normal as I can, so when, when, when you're around normal people and they hear about chess, they actually are pleasantly surprised because they have this whole stereotypical image of the game and of the people playing it, and uh, it's very important to change the image. 
I mean, I think it's the personalities. I think when you look at Magnus or myself, especially, um, we don't come across as the standard like nerd geek who's like all into science and math and everything. And I, th I, I think ultimately it's the personalities and the people who have the chance to change that image. The people who who are you know at the top right now. That's it's really important that we do as much as we can for the game. I, pl I played well enough to win the tournament. Did I play mm -hmm. my best? No. And I mean maybe this is in part from from having to deal with a former world champion a lot, but you know, when when you play chess, you should strive to be better. You should always strive to be better. And I blew some key opportunities here, which, you know, maybe if uh, if there were some stronger players playing in the tournament, that the extra half points would have added up, and I wouldn't have won. So, even though I played well, relatively, I mean, there definitely is room for improvement. And I think that's the most important thing is to keep trying to improve. I quite like that interview actually. I think Jenny did a good job there. We got to see a bit more about Hikaru um, as the person rather than the chess player which is great. I think he hit the nail on the head when he talked about the image problem and I think that's been something that uh, has been consistent for a long time now. I don't know what Gata will say if he ever heard what Hikaru just said about him drinking the night before. Uh, I don't know about you Steve, if I told you I went on the uh, on the Raz the night before I played you, and then beat you, let's say for the British Championships, you'd be slightly annoyed, wouldn't well, you? I, don't, I think that might kill the little bromance we've got going on, you know. It might That's be, right. Uh, that might be the end of our relationship, to be honest. Yeah, so, I mean... No, but it was good to hear Hikaru say some of the things there. Um, one, one interesting thing is what he said about uh, looking away from the board, because two big players that are, are renowned for this are Shirov and Ivanchuk, where you can actually look at Shirov play a whole game and he doesn't ever look at the board apart from when he makes the move you know, because they can see things better in their head. So that's a nice little touch. Uh, just referring to the championship itself, I think Hikaru overall deserved it. Um, I think he has truly solidified his status as, as the US number one. He brings a freshness to the game still and he brings an excitement that the world championship really lacks. I mean, I can assure you if Nakamura was in a world championship match, we would not see seven draws on move 26, that's for sure. Yeah, I think he would be really appealing to sponsors as well. So I think it was great. You know how you said that he's, he's over-critical of himself a little bit? Yeah. Well, you know, that to me... Sounds like real fighting talk. I mean, look at how perfectionist he's being there. He's saying, yeah, I won the tournament by a full point, but I'm making mistakes. That's championship talk, isn't it? That is. He wants that number one spot. He's going to be fighting to get up there, and he knows what he's going to do. And yeah, you're right. We'd never see Nakamura doing it. But I also think 99 times out of 100, we wouldn't see Anand doing it. It was just a one-off. But I know what you mean. Nakamura's a fighter, and it'd be great to see him in a world championship match at some point in the near future. Do you know what I want to see? I want to see one day Nakamura Carlson. <laughs> yeah, it's a big matchup, isn't it? For a second, I thought you were going to say Nakamura Gordon with five minutes to one blitz. <laughs> How do you reckon I'd get on with my five minutes? Do you reckon I'd have a chance, or is he just going to spank me? Mm, I, I think you'd I think you'd lose in a ten-game match overall. It's disappointing to hear, but I, I kind of agree with you. <laughs> I agree with All you. All right, well, we got to leave it there. By the way, we had live commentary, which can still be replayed at uschesschamps.com slash video there at the St. Louis Chess Club. 
and they're holding another match. It's an exhibition one, a little bit more low-key, but Yasser Serwan's going to play Classical, Rapid, and Blitz against former world champion Anatoly Karpov. So oh, wow. we'll look to, to get some clips from uh, those guys uh, on a future show for sure. Please do get it. I'll tell you what, if you can get Karpov introducing the FEP, I think I'll, when I die and go to heaven, I'll be a happy man. I'll see what I can do. Oh, hell. Am I going to hell? I mean, maybe I'm going to hell. I, don't, I mean, I don't. I'll tell you what, if I brush up on my opening prep, maybe I won't. <laughs>